Okay. Well, good morning. Thank you for the, the prayers. It's good to see everybody. Um, lots of new faces. Hopefully I get to meet some of you guys soon. Um, okay. So, this passage is very, very significant. Um, as Kevin said, it's the last little portion of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Aaron is going to, when he preaches next, he's going to circle back to those last few verses about the scribes and you know, the authority that Jesus has. But I want to focus on this last portion of this, of this Sermon on the Mount. Okay? And really, I, I just want to jump straight in because this passage is difficult, but like I said, it's super, super important that we understand this well, that we live in light of it, that we stand and trust Christ. As I said, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, and in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus preaches about some incredible things. He, he says incredible things. He talks about true religion. He talks about what it means to be blessed. He talks about how to treat our enemies. And here in verses 24 through 27, we have the final words of that sermon. And what Jesus says is very clear, very simple. Jesus called the people to live wisely by obeying his words, not just hearing his words. You see, Jesus is concerned about the relationship between how we live or our obedience and what we know about Jesus. In other words, what we hear about Jesus. And the relationship between those two things is important because if there's harmony between them, then you, I, we're living an authentic Christian life. And so great. But if there's not harmony, then we run the risk of being hypocrites. After all, I mean, if you can imagine the, the hundreds or the thousands of people, you know, following Jesus, maybe marching up to the side of this mountain to hear him preach, uh, are we really to think that every person there was there to simply worship Jesus? I mean, you can imagine that they heard about his miracles, about the powerful words that he said, his demeanor, his, his love, but do we really think that every person was there eager to obey? Well, of course not. And so Jesus is concerned with whether obedience to his words flow from hearing his words. And if that's the case, then you are wise. That's what's going on here. As Jeff preached about and, and Kevin preached about beforehand, there are some who claim Christ but are actually ravenous wolves only to be recognized by their terrible fruits. So that's verses 15 through 20. And then there are those who claim Christ and do all sorts of seemingly good, miraculous even, uh, works, but, but they don't actually do God's will. That's verses 21 through 23. 
And then there are those who, in our passage today, they they hear Christ, maybe even agree with Christ's teachings, but they they don't actually do it. And each of these people face the same tragic end, which is judgment and destruction. That's the context of our passage today, brothers and sisters. And so the Sermon on the Mount, contrary to popular belief, cannot be viewed as a philosophical treatise on religious ideas or merely a a list of good advice or suggestions. Jesus doesn't simply want intellectual assent to a particular philosophy or even his, his, his words. Jesus wants obedience to his words. Nothing more, nothing less. And so the main point I want you to take away this morning is that a Christian's wisdom is proved by their obedience to Christ. A Christian's wisdom is proved by their obedience to Christ. And so there are four things we need to see if we are to walk in wisdom and actually obey. All right, four things. The first thing you need to see is the wisdom in obeying. The wisdom in obeying, that's verses 24 through 25. The second thing you need to see is the folly or the foolishness of disobeying. That's verses 26 through 27. And then thirdly, I want to do a bit of heart work and talk about the barriers to obedience. And and I want to really ask the question, of of why we often struggle to obey. And then lastly, I want to explain how the gospel empowers us to obey and as a result makes us wise. So the wisdom of obedience, the folly of disobedience, bearers to obedience, and then the power for obedience. Let's look again at verses 24 through 25. And let's examine the connection between obedience and wisdom. Verse 24, everyone who then hears these words of mine, so hearing, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it didn't fall because it had been founded on the rock. Now, it is important to to clarify something here. I think when you and I read this, it's really easy to make this story all about the foundation, okay? Follow me carefully here. In other words, we tend to see the foundation as Jesus and the wise person building their worldview on Jesus. Now, that is undeniably true. You and I should build our worldview, what we know, what we believe, what we do upon Jesus. That, that is true, but, but, but that observation is, is not actually the main point of the, the parable. That's actually further downstream from the meaning. In fact, the, the parable is much simpler than that. The point of the parable is this, which is that hearing and obeying Jesus is wise. How so? How is it wise? Well, it's wise in the same way that someone building a house would actually build it on a foundation. That, that's it. 
And on the other hand, hearing Jesus, but disobeying him is dumb, it's foolish. In the same way that going about building a house on sand doesn't make any sense. But regardless, the illustration does have meaning. It does need to be unpacked. But I will say, seeing the the parable in this light is, is very helpful because it's actually going to keep us from what's called works righteousness, which is this belief that our works are what merits our earning and our good standing before God the Father. But, let, but let's unpack this parable. What do we notice here? Follow me along in the text um, as we do this. But firstly, we notice that both the fool and the wise person are building houses. We see this in verse 24 and later on in verse 26. So both the fool and the wise person are building houses, right? Um, that's significant because it's not building a house or knowing how to build a house in this parable that makes someone wise. Both the fool and the wise man are doing it. The same is true for the hearers of Jesus and for us today. It's not hearing or knowing or even liking the tenets of Christianity or the teachings of Jesus or even the gospel of grace that makes you wise. Anyone can appreciate and intellectually affirm those things. And history is full of people who do it. But also notice that both the fool and the wise person encounter a ferocious storm. Scholars point out that these intense storms that Jesus describes, they, they weren't frequent, but they could be very deadly and destructive. So it was all the more important to make sure that if you built a house and lived in that house, that it would actually be able to withstand these storms. Scholars have also pointed out that the storm described here is not just the storms of life, the trials of life, but it's more serious than that. The storms here refer to the final judgment, a moment in time where we'll stand before God and give an account how we've lived. It's in this sense, then, to build a house on a solid rock only makes sense. It's the obvious choice, isn't it? Obeying God, according to this text, is wise because it's the obvious path path to wisdom. It's wise to obey God because Our obedience, the kind of life that we live, is what God will take into account on the final day of judgment. You see, this is, you know, a simple truth, really. But it's very thought-provoking. The more that you meditate on this, right? Because it's counter-cultural. It's counter-intuitive. Because... Although people in our day are very concerned with wisdom and, you know, being smart and all these things, uh, how many people think of wisdom in these terms? When people usually think of wisdom, what do they think of? They think of knowing things, right? They say, oh, so-and-so is so wise because, you know, he, he knows all of this. So-and-so is so wise because he wrote this really good book. I mean, maybe. 
Maybe he is. So-and-so is wise because they just know the Bible so well. Man, they can quote that thing. Must be wise. Maybe, maybe not. So-and-so is so wise because look at how old they are. They've lived a life with so much experience. Maybe, or maybe you're just an old fool. On the other hand, you can be a wise child. If you obey, that is. That's what the text is getting at. Lived experience does nothing to guarantee wisdom, only obedience does. And the Bible views wisdom as rightly applying and doing what Jesus says, and by extension, the scriptures. So I ask you this morning, brothers and sisters, before I move on, who or what are you listening to and obeying? How we answer this question will in part prove whether we have a solid foundation in our wise or whether we have a sandy foundation in our fools. Maybe you're hearing Jesus' words, but you are obeying tradition. That won't withstand the storm. Maybe you're hearing Jesus' words, but you're ultimately obeying your culture or your family. That won't withstand the storm. Maybe you're spending hours each week, hours throughout the month, listening to sermons, lectures, podcasts, reading books, but you're still not obeying what Jesus clearly told you to do. That won't withstand the storm. That's nothing more than a sandy foundation. You see, some ways... People think that wisdom is found in tradition. Other people say that wisdom is found ultimately in self-expression and maybe the arts or the sciences. But Christianity says that wisdom is found in the living Christ and aligning ourselves to him above all else. You see, a Christian's wisdom is proved by their obedience to Christ. And according to this text, Our obedience, the kind of life we live, is exactly the thing that God will take into account on the final day of judgment. And it's only a life that's full of good works that will withstand the judgment. Well, let's transition. That's how obedience to God is wise. But what about the opposite, right? What about the opposite, the folly The folly of disobeying. That's in verses 26 through 27. Let's take another look at the parable and just unpack this a little bit more. We've we've almost covered it all. Consider the foolishness of hearing Jesus but disobeying him. This is verses 26 and 27. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell, floods came, The winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Well, here we we see folly showcased by someone who hears Jesus, but doesn't do what he says. We see that both wise and the fool are building. We saw that both builders go through storms, But the key difference, and here it is, the key difference between the wise man and the fool is the foundation that they chose to build upon. The foundation. Now, 
as I was reading this and thinking this over, I thought to myself, you know, who would be so dumb, so lazy, so as to go about building a house without any regard for the foundation of the house? Like, like it's almost comical to think about. Like, I don't really know what kind of lawyer it's called, you know, the people who deal with houses and stuff like that, but that seems like a slam dunk case. Like, if you came to somebody and said, hey, I have this house that was built, there's no foundation. Somebody needs to pay for this. It seems pretty easy, right? But man, you and I and so many people live without any regard to their foundation. How often do we think and, and pause and contemplate, hmm, who am I obeying today? Who have I listened to today? Am I really following Jesus right now? You, you know, we, we go through autopilot. <laughs> we, we assume we're fine because, look, I was in church. Like, I read my Bible. I prayed. I thought about God today. I must be fine. Is that what the text says? Well, we say that's for the legalists, all this work, all these works, these, these good works things, you know, that's, that's for the uber-religious. Hear D.A. Carson on this. He says, we drift towards compromise and we call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. You see, the folly of disobedience in this parable, it's subtle. It's deceptive. Because both the wise man and the fool have houses. They, they seem stable. They seem neat. They seem well put together. After all, you can't see a foundation unless you actually go in and go downstairs and do the hard work. Yet when the wind and the rain and the floods of verse 27 come, the house with a poor foundation will be utterly destroyed. And if the rain, wind, and floods beating on the house refer to God's eschatological judgment, then the great fall of the house is the wrath of God in hell. Hear the way Proverbs 1 talks about this. It's a little long, but it's very insightful. Proverbs 1, verse 20 says, Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. Can you, can you hear Jesus in this? At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded, because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof. 
I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm, and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress, when distress and anguish come upon you, well, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have the fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by what? They're turning away. And the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Can you hear Jesus in this proverb? See, Jesus is keeping a step with the wisdom literature of the Old Testament and saying that you and I will only withstand God's judgment if we've lived a life of obedience. The fool is the one who hears wisdom's cry but won't listen and live it out. Now, okay, let's take a breather because it's important for us to step back and address the elephant in the room, which maybe... I should say elephants in the room. There are two, which makes her a very uncomfortable room. The first elephant in the room is this. Okay? You know, Christians, how can we say that we're the ones who are truly wise, right? How, how, how can you say everyone else is wrong and, and you are right? And, and, and not to mention that, this talk of hell, right? I mean... Whoever doesn't follow this is going to hell. What about the person who's never even heard of Jesus? How, how does this work? Well, maybe you're not a Christian, um, and you're here and you're wondering that. And I'm glad, because I do want to address it. Or maybe you are a Christian, and this is just a struggle for you. I, I understand. But here's the thing. Christians don't think that they are right, but rather we believe that Jesus is right, and what he says is true. That's the difference. And Jesus is the one who says he's right. <laughs> Jesus is the one who says everyone else is wrong. So the question is not, uh, how do we as Christians have the audacity to say such things? The question is, how does Jesus have the audacity to say such things? That's something you have to wrestle with. And you know, the doctrine of hell and the people who've never heard of Jesus is difficult. But to be honest, this passage is not about them. It's about you. Because you've heard. So what are you going to do now that you hear? Don't get distracted. What are you going to build on? Sand or a solid foundation? Of course, here's the other elephant in the room, which is probably more significant, which I'll spend a few minutes on before I move on, which is this. Darren, are you saying that we are saved by our works, by us living a good life? I thought we were a Protestant church. Uh, I mean, clearly you're sleep deprived. I know you have you know, like a young kid in the house. Well, you know, I am sleep deprived, but I stand by this, okay? Um, are you saying, Darren, that the foundation of our salvation is our works? 
Well, that's an important question. Because we need to understand this. This is, this is the nature, this is at the core of Christianity, okay? All right, this is at the core. And this is why I go back to what I was talking about with this parable and understanding it rightly. Because the nature of the parable or the point of the parable is, is not that we need to live wisely and, and build a foundation of good works so that somehow we can stand before God's judgment. That's not the point. Once again, the, the point of the parable is, is that if you obey Jesus, you are like, you're like a wise man that, that built a stable house on a good foundation that can withstand any kind of weather. The point of the parable, then, isn't about the foundation of our salvation at all. That's not the point of the parable. The point of the parable is simply about how true Christians, how they live. And a Christian's wisdom is proved by their obedience to Christ. That's it. Yet, it's still important to maybe dig into that question a bit. Because the Bible does speak of God judging people, in some sense, based upon their works, doesn't it? Here, Romans 2, verses 6 through 7, and these passages will be on the board. They're fairly short. Or the screen, I mean. Um, Romans 2, 6 through 7, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he'll give eternal life. Um, 2 Corinthians 5, 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what He's done in the body, whether good or evil. And so, it is very important that we need to understand how obedience um, or our works relates to our faith, okay? We need to understand this. And I think the letter of James, written by Jesus' little brother, probably sitting, you know, listening to this Sermon on the Mount, James has something important to say. It's actually considered the wisdom book of the New Testament. Listen to James chapter 2, verses 18 through 19. James says, you know what? Someone's going to say, you have faith, but I have works. And so James says, you know what? Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'm going to show you my faith by my works. You know what? You believe that God is one. Great job, nice theological insight. Even the demons do, and they shudder. And so follow James in chapter 3, verse 13. James says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Okay, wisdom. By his good conduct, let him show his works and the meekness of wisdom. And then in verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and what? Good fruits. Impartial and sincere. And then we have Paul in Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, which by the way, Paul and James are buddies. You don't need to reconcile friends, right? If somebody said, Darren, did you and Benga make it right? I'm like, no, we're, we're good. Like, we don't have a problem with each other. The same way Paul and James, they're in heaven right now holding hands, drinking wine. They're good. They're on the same team. Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, okay, 
Here's how it works. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you and I should walk in them. That's it. And so, back to the the text at hand in Matthew, this is why we can and we must simultaneously say, say that we are saved by God's grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone, okay, we have to say that, while also maintaining that God will judge us in some sense in relationship to our works. We have to say both. Because after all, if it wasn't this way, says James, many people would stand before God with this long resume of orthodox beliefs that they hold to, but with lives that are basically indistinguishable from the world. And you know what? They would be welcomed right on into the kingdom. But simply standing before God and explaining your beliefs, orthodox or not, doesn't make you any holier than demons. You might say, Lord, I believe in the Trinity. Great, so do demons. Lord, but, but I really got it right. Like, I believe in the hypostatic union. I got everything down pat. Okay, great, so do demons. Go on. Lord, I, I believe in the Bible. So do demons, and that's why they twist it. But Lord, I, I, like, I believe in the gospel of grace, that we're saved by grace through faith. Okay, so does Satan. That's why he tries to distort it and add legalism. You see, the fact is that Satan is more orthodox than many churches in America. Yet Satan isn't in heaven because he doesn't obey God. So, Carus, the question before us this morning is not, are we saved by grace alone through faith alone? Brothers and sisters, if it wasn't the case, you and I would be hopeless. Of course we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. There's no other way to be saved. But rather the question is this. Is the Christ who has saved you inactive or active? Is the Christ who has saved you alive or, or, or dead? Have you been saved by the works of Christ and are his works on display in your life as evidenced by your obedience? That is the question. Or is the Christ in you deaf towards his promises and his own words to bring about and bring to completion the good work that he first began? This is why God can and must judge us in some sense in relationship to our works because he's looking to make sure his son is at work. Well, once again, a Christian's wisdom is proved by their obedience to Christ. We've seen that. We've seen, on the other hand, it's foolish to disobey Christ because you won't be able to withstand the judgment. But with all that being said, I do want to take a moment to speak to common barriers that you and I face in our path to obedience. Barrier, barriers to obedience, okay? Barriers to obedience. Um, there are two. I think the first one is that uh, we tend to have an unhealthy skepticism at times. That can be a real barrier to obedience. And this can take many forms. I think if you, maybe if you're not a believer or maybe if you have a friend who's not a believer, it can often look like a lot of intense questions, right? Questions like, well, we don't really know, 
what Jesus meant by these teachings. We, we can't really be sure what Jesus said. We, we can't really believe the integrity of the Bible. Um, those kinds of questions. Questions in which I can't unpack right now. Time won't allow me to do that, though I would love to talk about that more on the side stage. But I do want to spend just 30 seconds addressing it, which is to say, I get that question. I've wrestled with that question. I think we all have. But the thing is, um, contrary to popular belief, the Bible is not actually that hard to understand. You, you don't need a PhD. You don't need you know, all these credentials to study the Bible. It's so simple that peasants, illiterate peasants throughout history have understood it and came to believe many of the same things that we believe today. You don't need all that extra stuff. A kid can understand the Bible. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't study the original languages. (laughs) We need more people to do that. But... It's not difficult to understand when Jesus says he's the only way to the Father or that God created the heavens and the earth. That's not difficult. And moreover, when you read the Bible, you're looking at a book with more historical attestation than almost any other book in the world. Specifically, when you look at the New Testament, we're looking at things that were written just a few years after the events occurred. We don't have anything like that in Aristotle or Plato or Julius Caesar, yet we often take what happened with them for granted. We'd be lucky to find something written from them within 500 years of the events attested to, let alone, you know, 15, which is what we have in the New Testament. But of course, maybe you're skeptical in a different sense, right? Maybe you, this morning, you're hearing what I'm saying, but you are simply struggling, you are doubting, to know whether or not you are hearing Jesus correctly. And that makes sense. But I want to encourage you with something very simple, which is this. The only way to know whether you are hearing Jesus and and therefore obeying him, right? You have to obey him. You have to hear him rather first to obey him. But the only way you know whether you are hearing Jesus rightly is by searching the scriptures. Uh, I mean, we so often forget that God has spoken most clearly and infallibly through his scriptures. So while you may not know with 100% certainty what to do next in life by reading the Bible alone, you can only know with 100% certainty what God has said by reading the Bible alone. Let me say that again. While you may not know with 100% certainty what to do next in life by reading the Bible alone, you can only know with 100% certainty what God has said by reading the Bible alone. Which, by the way, is all you really need for a life of good works and wisdom and godliness. But I know some of us in here struggle not because of, you know, skepticism or these questions of doubts. I think some of us struggle because we are simply afraid of other people. Maybe that's why it's hard for you to obey. Maybe that is your barrier. You are afraid. Maybe you know the relationship that you're in is unbiblical, but you're afraid that if you break up, you won't find someone else. Maybe you know that the things you watch and the things you say are dishonoring to God, but you're afraid that if you stop them, your friends might think, You're kind of one of those weird religious freaks. 
Maybe you know that the way you act around your coworkers or classmates is foolish, but you fear what other people might say or do. This, this kind of fear is real. We need to address it. But these barriers to obedience are not unfamiliar to the Bible. Both skepticism and fear find their roots in the Garden of Eden. It was there where Satan planted this idea of doubt and skepticism in the minds of Adam and Eve. God had a tree called the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Satan went up to, to Eve and distracted her and said, look, do you really want to obey God? I mean, come on, is it really worth it? Can you really trust what God said? Did he really say? All of that kind of language, right, is how Satan approached Eve. And what's interesting is that when Eve saw, and this is so important, when Eve saw that it, the fruit of the tree, was to be desired to make one wise, to make one wise, she ate it. I'm afraid that we have become so familiar with the storyline of the Bible that we forget the minutia, right? right? This, is, this is huge. This point right here is huge because when you separate the fear of the Lord from wisdom, there's inevitably going to be problems. That's what this is showing us. The moment you separate the fear of the Lord from wisdom, there are problems. And disobedience and foolishness and all sorts of crazy things start happening. That's what Genesis shows us. And then Moses in Deuteronomy, when he's giving the law, he's concerned about this as well. Which is why he says, look, if you, obey, if you obey the law, this will be wisdom to you. And he talks over and over again about fearing the Lord. Moses had the same concern. This is, this is the issue in Judges, when it says that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. No regard for the law. No regard for the fear of the Lord. And we see this same problem in Solomon who fell into this separating the fear of the Lord from the pursuit of wisdom when he made these weird sort of political alignments with other nations, despite the fact that he wrote so much of the wisdom literature, despite the fact that he was regarded as the wisest king in Israel. And you know, we have the same issue in our day, don't we? Separating the fear of the Lord from the pursuit of wisdom. We think, hey, look, if we just have enough wisdom to implement the right policies or educational programs, or if we could just get enough of our, you know, state's finances in line, maybe we could just fix it if we have that in place. Maybe if we can just get our ecosystem in, in balance, then things will be right. This is how we think. You know, um, being in a college town... <laughs> you kind of see this happening all the time, right? You get these young students who are super excited and they're like, yeah, I'm going to go change the world. So I'm going to go to college and I'm going to get a degree and be wise and I'm going to make some big moves and big decisions and change things. And then, you know, they go to a few classes and they get a real job and they realize, oh man, you know, life is actually much more complicated than this. And then on the other hand, you have people who, you know, 
are just cynical, and they're like, man, look, nothing's going to change. This all sucks. You know, I'm an old man now, and all you guys are fools, and my generation is just way better than yours, and your generation's all going to hell in a handbasket. And you know, well, I mean, who, who's right? Uh, well, I mean, in a sense, they're both right. That, I mean, that's what happens when you pursue wisdom apart from the Lord. You, wisdom apart from the Lord only gets you so far, you know? Um, wisdom apart from the Lord can't really deal with the biggest problems, namely death, right? Wisdom apart from the Lord always leaves us hanging with unsolvable problems because the wisdom of the world has no way of dealing with the biggest problem, death. You know, what good is it if we have, you know, um, what's the guy's name, Dave Ramsey in his book on, you know, uh, finances? What good is it if we have all these wise political talking heads if we're all going to die anyways? So, well, that's the wisdom apart from the Lord. But where's the gospel in all of this? As I, as I get ready to wrap up, where's the gospel in all of this? Because if we're honest, it's not actually apparent from this, from this text, is it? You have Jesus saying, look, live wisely and obey. And then you'll be saved. You'll be secure. And so if I ended the sermon by simply just saying that, I mean, poof, that, that's That's rough. And so as we close, I want to talk about the power for obedience. Okay, we've seen the wisdom in obedience. We've seen the folly of disobedience. We've seen the barriers to obedience, namely that we have fear or where we have this you know, unhealthy skepticism. But I want to finish by talking about the power for obedience. I don't believe that God wants us to read this parable coming away with this impression that you can't know if you're saved. Far be it from the truth. But in order to make sense of this passage and find the gospel in it, we have to put it within the larger framework of God's story. Right? We, we see wisdom all throughout the Bible. We see wisdom in creation, which is Jesus working his wisdom out, creating all things for him, through him, by him. We see Moses, just like Jesus, on the side of a mountain, giving God's law to his people. And we see Moses appealing to the people, saying, look, don't be fools, be wise, obey. Fear the Lord, obey. And we see Jesus saying the same thing here, revealing, in fact, embodying God's law and God's wisdom. We see Solomon, the wisest king in Israel, yet forsaking the fear of the Lord and therefore living foolishly, taking on a whole bunch of wives, doing crazy things. But on the other hand, we see Jesus coming to earth as the embodiment of God's wisdom and establishing God's kingdom, a greater kingdom than Solomon's kingdom, by his wisdom. You see, Jesus was the most consistent person to ever live. He perfectly lived out the Sermon on the Mount. He walked in total wisdom. He built his house on a steady foundation, perfectly obeying God the Father every minute, every day, every hour, every year of his life. Incredible. Yet to the average Jew, at least on the surface, 
His life and the way he walked in wisdom seemed foolish at worst and perplexing at best. Right? Because Proverbs says, watch out for sinners. Yet Jesus ate with sinners. Proverbs says, don't even go near the adulterous woman. And who is Jesus discipling? An adulterous woman. And the greatest scandal to wisdom was the cross. The righteous man building his life on a sure foundation to to face God's wrath? What is going on? Well, we'll talk more about that Friday and Sunday, but man, you see, this is the very thing that made the cross seem foolish. The fact that you have this wise man, the righteous man, on a cross. You see, Jesus did and said a lot of powerful and wise things, but the height of wisdom and power isn't the Sermon on the Mount. That's not the height of it. The height of wisdom and power is not even in Jesus' healings. The height and wisdom, the height of his power is found in the wisdom of the cross, which seems like foolishness to the world, doesn't it? See, the gospel is not, if you live a good life, if you have good works, then you'll not go to hell. Nor is the gospel, if you wisely listen to Jesus' words, then you'll somehow be saved. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that God, in his wisdom, used the foolishness of the cross to save sinners and make them wise unto salvation. That's, That's the gospel. That's where this is all going. And so we look at this passage and say, Lord, how can I obey? Well, the first thing we need to know is that before Jesus says anything on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, repent and believe. Repent and believe. That's the equivalent of, hey, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of the knowledge of good and evil. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so could it be that our struggles to obey in life are because we lack a reverential fear of the Lord? Could it be that we're not actually trusting him? I think many of us are afraid of obeying the Lord because it looks foolish, but the wisdom of God always looks foolish to the world. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you by saying the Holy Spirit, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives in you and the Holy Spirit will empower you to do good works. The Holy Spirit will empower you to obey. God will bring about his good work in you. We see this in Philippians 1 and Philippians 2. I would encourage you guys to read that when you have, when you have some time. But as I, as I get ready to, to close here, I want to maybe leave you with one point of application, which is simply this. Obey the clear teachings of Scripture, the clear didactic teachings of Scripture right now without hesitation. 
I don't have like three points of application or none of that today. It's just this. When you leave here, obey what you clearly know about Jesus according to his word. I know many people say, look, man, following Jesus, listening to every single word that he says, doing every single, all that stuff, I mean, what about reason? What about, you know, modernity? What about our own sense of understanding? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it looks foolish. But this is the wisdom of God. I could say, I would love to say so much more about this, but Brothers and sisters, I want to invite you to to pray with me. I want you to to pray with me right now as as we close our time together. Remember, the wisdom of God is found in the cross. Trust his spirit. Father, I thank you for your words. None of us are If we're honest, none of us can live wisely enough. None of us can obey enough. But, Lord, the call to obey is not a call to, you know, some sort of legalistic standard or something like that. But rather, the call to obey is simply to walk in faith. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Lord, trusting you, believing in you, is the beginning of wisdom. Believing in you is is the way in which we get to the point to where we're doing works that honor and please you. God, I'm so thankful. We are so thankful that you are wisdom, Jesus. You are wisdom. We don't need anything else. In fact, anything else has the appearance of godliness, but has no power in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. Only the gospel can do that. Jesus, we thank you that we are going to a place where there is a new garden with a tree planted in the middle producing life and wisdom. And we get to partake of that tree. We get to partake of you, Jesus, due to your spirit at work in us. Please help us to embody the Sermon on the Mount and not be hypocrites, but be consistent. And when we fail, Lord, would we return back to you the fear of the Lord, repenting and believing the gospel because it's only your cross that saves us. We pray all this in your name. Amen.